about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. on page 982 of the standard print and remains a mystery for the other ones. Um, So I'll just give you a short moment to find this and then I'll dive in without warning. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind, so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Well, good evening, everyone. Let's pray before we look at God's word together. Father, we do pray that as we open up the scriptures today from this passage that you will Speak to us about uh, the truth that's uh, there, your truth, and that it might shape our lives as well. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to start with uh, verse 7, where Peter says, The end of all things is near. What a statement. Just dwell on that for a moment. The end of all things is near. There it is in the Word of God, as clear as a bell. Do you actually believe that? That we live at the, in the last days and that the end of all things is near? On the surface, a statement like that feels like the theme of an apocalyptic movie. Um, you know, an apocalyptic, uh, apocalyptic movies may not be your thing. The earth is heading into a cataclysmic collapse that is going to trigger the end of human civilization as we know it. 
And here are two um, apocalyptic movies that are being released this year. So the first one speaks for itself, Moonfall. So what's happening here is that the moon has been thrown out of orbit and is heading towards the earth and is about to cause the total destruction of the human race. Now, if that one doesn't really get your fancy, this one's a little bit more imaginative, I think. I haven't quite worked out how this works, but the wandering earth too. I presume there was a wandering earth one. Did anyone ever see that? <laughs> Good on you, Alex. Great. Well, the wandering earth too, I don't want to give anything away here, but planet earth is being transported onto a vessel that will transverse the universe. And the last humans are tasked to lead the planet into a new age of survival. Ah. Now, friends, these are just fantasies. <laughs> and even then, in these movies, however close they get to the end, something emerges. There's always some post-apocalyptic world and we survive after all. But what Peter says in verse 7 is real and far more cataclysmic. He says, look at, the, look at the verse again, the end, not a near end, not a near miss. The end, he says, is near. And it's not just the end of humanity or even the earth. This is the end of all things, the whole universe. No good being transported across the universe in, a, in, in some rocket or something. No, this is the end of all things, even the billions of galaxies that seem to stretch out forever, and it is near. We live in the last days. Now, should we be alarmed when we read these words? Should we, should we panic? If any of these apocalyptic movies were actually real, if the moon was on a collision course with the earth, or I was actually a survivor being transported across the universe, I would be terrified. But we know from the Bible that the end of all things will come when Jesus returns and ushers in a be at the beginning of a new and perfect creation. That is the great news of the gospel, that Jesus is coming back to bring in a new creation that is glorious in every way, where there is no sin or sorrow, or sickness, or death. That, friends, is, the, is great news to everyone who believes. And see what Peter already has said to us in chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. He says, every believer has been given an inheritance, an inheritance in this new kingdom that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power, until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So, should we be alarmed? Well, no, because we have been guaranteed an inheritance in the new kingdom. Instead, we should be sober and alert so that we can pray. Now, Peter wrote those words 2,000 years ago. But Jesus is yet to come. And therein lies our problem. Because so much time has passed, because the last days have already been going for 2,000 years, we've learnt to relax. Jesus won't come in my life. Time is on my side. There's no urgency about this. 
And it's the world around us that seems so real, not the coming kingdom. And we learn to ignore verses like this when we read them in the Bible. So we're barely conscious in our day-to-day lives that Jesus is coming back. Do you live your life believing that these are the last days? We don't feel the urgency that there is a, a world that needs to know Jesus before the end comes? We live our lives as if he's never coming. And then we're not sober and alert. And if we're not sober and alert, then we don't pray. Now, Peter doesn't say what we should pray for here. But I think it would likely include the following. If the end of all things is near, pray that you will not fall into temptation. Pray that you will be sober and alert so that your eyes can remain fixed on Jesus and the priorities of his kingdom. Pray that while time remains, people here and throughout the world will come to know Christ. So pray for world mission. Pray that the Spirit of God will bring revival here, but also around the world, particularly in places where there are very few Christian believers. They're good things to pray for, aren't they? So friends, if the end of all things is near, how then should we live? And the two things that Peter says in this passage may not jump out to us as of first importance, but they are important to God. So let's have a look at those things. The first is in verses 1 to 6, and then we'll look at verses 8 to 11. So in verses 1 to 6, Peter simply says, be done with sin. Be done with sin. In verse 1, he takes us back to the sufferings of Christ and tells us that we must have the same attitude that Christ had. Now think back to the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before Christ was crucified. Here the character of Christ was put to the test. Jesus was fully aware of the awful suffering that awaited him the next day. The easy path for Jesus would have been to cave in. But the attitude of Jesus rings out loud and clear. Not my will but yours be done. In the face of unbelievable suffering, Jesus chooses obedience. In the face of awful suffering, Jesus chooses right over wrong. He does not give in to sin despite the enormous cost. He went to the cross to do away with sin. Now, as believers, we're told that we must have the same attitude as Christ had, that we will choose to obey God no matter the cost, that we will choose the right no matter the cost. Now, I think Peter expects that Christians here will suffer. And we know that the people Peter is writing to did suffer for their faith. And by choosing to remain faithful to Christ and accept suffering, they and we add our resolve to be done with sin. In some parts of the world, Christians are forced to make difficult decisions, difficult choices at great cost. To be done with sin and say yes to Christ. 
So since Saddam Hussein's regime collapsed in Iraq in 2003, the Christian community in Iraq has dwindled by 92%, from 1.5 billion pe million people, 1.5 million people to just 120,000. Here is what one Christian wrote. Christianity in Iraq, one of the oldest churches in the world, is perilously close to extinction. Those of us who remain must be ready to face martyrdom. Our tormentors confiscated our present while seeking to wipe out our history and destroy our future. Tens of thousands of Christians have nothing to show for their life's work, for generations of work in places where their families have lived maybe for thousands of years. Now, of course, there were easier options for them. Just deny Christ. They are choosing to be done with sin. And they have chosen to remain faithful to Jesus because they know that there is a glorious hope awaiting them when Jesus returns. Now, our choices may not be as stark as theirs, but our attitude must be the same. And here, verse 2 sums up for us what the Christian attitude to sin must be. As a result... They do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desire, but rather for the will of God. The word evil there has been added in. They thought it was helpful, not in the original. should just read, for human desire, which I think is better. What are your hopes and dreams for the rest of your earthly life? What a question. It's a great question. To be honest, the answers may be very worldly. It may be career, family, earn enough money to live comfortably, live for pleasure. They are the dreams of our culture, aren't they? That we can just absorb, hook, line and sinker. And living for the will of God takes second or third or maybe fourth place at best. In our pursuit of pleasure, God can become an afterthought perhaps something we do on a Sunday. The Bible says that as the end of all things is near, there is no time to live that way. As Christians, we live to pursue the will of God. We make His priorities our priorities. Every decision is made for the purpose of bringing glory to God. Friends, for the rest of your earthly lives, live to do the will of God. Make that your pursuit. This is profoundly intentional. And if we do that, there is no place left for sin. Living for the will of God and living in sin are at odds with each other. They are incompatible. In verse 3, see how this plays out in our lives in practical ways. Peter's telling the new converts here. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They have wasted their lives living in sin. But now that they have died to, died to sin and are raised as new people in Christ, be done with sin and live to please God. Look at the list of things he mentions here. We will each read those 
that list in the light of our own past and current struggles. I became a Christian when I was nine years old. So I can hardly remember a life without Christ as Lord. But these things are still a temptation to me. They may well describe the life that, that some of you lived before you came to Christ or you continue to struggle with today. Many people have come to Christ out of lifestyles much like this. Sin can be deceptive and sneak up upon us all. Let's not pretend that we're immune. Lustful thoughts are always close by. Internet pornography is a huge issue amongst Christian people. And this list is not all sexual sins. Many Christians struggle with alcohol, particularly in a social context or a work context. That may be you. And detestable idolatry. Well, it may not be, in our culture, it may not be made out of wood or stone, but it can be equally, if not more, insidious. Money, looks, houses, holidays. There are idols all around us. And our world thinks these are good. And they are encouraging us to embrace them and join them. Peer pressure is huge. The media glorifies the idols of our world and makes sin attractive and normalizes it. So we start to feel that there's something wrong with us that we don't go along with them. So don't be fooled by sin. Evil is evil, no matter what spin the world puts on it. We are so vulnerable to this and we need this reminder. Don't waste your life on sin. We've been redeemed from, from, from that life so that we can live new lives that bring glory to God. And the good news is that Jesus has given us his spirit to enable us to say no to sin and live for him. This is hard, but we're not alone. God is with us. God is in us. God has given us his word. So a constant daily devotional life in God's word will strengthen our resolve. And he's given us each other so that we can encourage one another and pray for one another. And also remember from verse 5 there that the world is wrong. In verses 5, we're told that on that great day when Jesus returned, all people will be called to give an account, the living and the dead. And on that day, truth will become crystal clear to everyone. Truth will win out. All the lies and deceptions of this world will all be exposed for what they are. What is evil will be seen as evil. What is good will be seen as good. And God forbid that on that day it become clear that we've been wasting our lives living for the wrong thing. If you've got the passage open there, verse 6 is a little tricky, what's being said there. Um, Peter's readers are the very first generation of Christians. They were expecting Jesus to come back very quickly in their lifetime. And they were confused about the status of those, their brothers and sisters who'd now died. And Peter's just assuring them there that physical death is part of the judgment of God on all sin. We all die. But as believers in Christ, they will be raised to new life. Now let's move to the second 
from verses 8 to 11, in the, it may seem odd or even anticlimactic in the light of the end of all things that the most important thing we must do, that is above all, he says in verse 8, is to love the church. Really? And when, when I say church here, I'm, I'm not talking about an institution, I'm not talking about a denomination, uh, not structures, nor traditions, or hierarchies. All those things will be gone when the end comes. I'm talking about the people of God, a spiritual people gathered from every corner of the world, saved by the blood of Jesus, and filled with the Spirit of God, unseen to the world, but real. We confess our belief in this church when we say the creed. I believe in one holy and apostolic church. So why does Peter make our love for God's people a priority? And it is because the church is at the center of God's plan of redemption in Christ. For 2,000 years ago, Jesus died for the church to call a people out of darkness and he filled his church with the Holy Spirit. We are a gathering like no other. Just look again at the amazing way Peter describes the church in chapter 2. He says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession." that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now we are the people of God. To the outsider, the church seems insignificant, weak and irrelevant. To the insider, we may just be conscious of our failings and our sin and the hurts that we cause one another. But despite all of that, in God's sovereign plan, the end of the ages belongs to us. We are the bride of Christ. We are loved by him. When the end of all things come, the church will stand. There are wonderful images of the glorious future as the people of God when Jesus returns. One of them in Revelation 7, 9 a great multitude that no one can count from every nation, tribe, language and tongue. Praising God and the Lamb in one voice. It is an image of triumph and that is us. So no wonder when Peter says the end of all things is near, he tells us to direct our hearts and our energies towards the things that will last to the people of God. He says these three things. Love each other deeply, verse 8. Offer hospitality without grumbling, verse 9. Serve with the gifts God has given you in verses 10 and 11. Let's have a look at love each other deeply. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Peter's describing a new community of which there is no parallel in the world. Our love should defeat all the things that normally divide people in the world, all those racial barriers, social barriers, educational barriers. We don't just love those in church the way the world loves people, love those who are like us. 
or who look like us or who share our theological views or who speak my language or share my cultural values or who have the same political persuasion. Our love must be outwards to all people who call on the name of Jesus as Lord. But notice in the verse there's a very practical outworking of this love. Because love covers over a multitude of sins. What he means is, when we love each other deeply, we will put aside those small grievances and hurts that we may feel, the times we may feel offended, and, and those things we hold on to that can so easily tear our fellowship apart. Real love won't allow us to carry that sort of bitterness and offense towards another person. It will cover over a multitude of sins. Of course, there are some sins that are of such seriousness that they need to be named and dealt with. But it will cover over a multitude of sins. Real love will issue in forgiveness and grace in a way that the world doesn't understand. Friends, are there offenses that you're holding on to that really you should just let go? Are there people here that you need to forgive? Are there people that you really need to love? Peter goes on to say that our love will be shown in our hospitality. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. He's not just talking about opening up our homes or inviting people over for dinner, though he is saying that, but that we should open our lives to each other. The church should be a place where anyone can find a welcome. And if we are a hospitable church, and if we are showing hospitality to people without grumbling, it will start here as we welcome people into church and greet people and treat, treat people with respect and show an interest in them. That's where it will start. And then it'll issue not, it won't just stop there, but it's as we open our, our hearts and our lives to people and let them in. Remember the early church that we read of in Acts? We are told of their extraordinary hospitality, that they shared everything in common, and there was no needy person amongst them. That's what we read in Acts chapter 2. But you know, by the time you get to Acts chapter 6, the church had grown and become multicultural, and suddenly they had to deal with the issue of people not being hospitable to one another. There were there were Jews that spoke Greek and there were Jews that didn't speak Greek and they had to sort out that division so that they could be hospitality again. And interestingly, even Peter, who wrote this very chapter, this very verse here about hospitality, had to be rebuked by Paul in Galatians chapter 2 because he would not eat with Gentiles. And yet now years later when he writes this letter, he says, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. We have to learn to be hospitable to one another to the, and to open our lives and to particularly welcome those who are on the edge or who are lonely or who are struggling. And then finally, we are to serve each other with the gifts that God has given us. Please notice the first words in this verse. Each of you. So these verses are not directed at certain people in the church. They're not directed at the leaders. They're not directed at those who are trained. No, no. They are directed at each of you. 
Peter is clear that God has equipped every person with gifts that are to be used to serve others. You have a God-given role to play in the body of Christ. It will look different from one person to the next, but please don't think you have nothing to offer. God has gifted you so that you might serve. And each of us are to be faithful stewards of what God has given us. What Peter doesn't countenance here is that you do nothing. If you do nothing, then you are not a faithful steward of the gifts that God has given you. So you're not to treat church as a consumer. We're not to sit on the sidelines or even just sit back and wait to be invited. No, God has saved you and called you into his church with a God-given role to play. So if you, have you asked the simple question of yourself or, or if you're not sure, ask others who know you, how does God want me to serve? How can I use my gifts to love others deeply. Now according to verse 11, our last verse here, your service may be in words, speaking, or in actions. And really words and actions pretty much encompass everything, don't they? We can serve one another by speaking the words of God to one another. Now you may well then say, oh that's not me because I'm not a preacher, that's, that's directed at the preachers. Let me say we all speak, don't we? So we can all intentionally take opportunities to provide a word of encouragement when we speak, to offer a word of support to someone. It could be in your Bible study group, connect group. It could be a word just spoken over supper at the end of church or when you go out for dinner. It could be dropping someone a text message or an email and saying something that could make a difference in their lives. Maybe that's a skill or a habit that we need to develop better. So that in our conversations and as we speak to people, we're taking the opportunity to speak the word of God to people into their lives. And I think we could all do better at that and I could do better at that. Speak the words of God to each other. How can your words, how can my words, either written or spoken, be an encouragement to others? And also we can serve in action. There's no shortage of ways that we can commit to serving one another here at church. And by doing so, we can grow the church and expand our ministries. And we do so with God's strength so that in all things, God might be praised through Jesus Christ our Lord. Take the initiatives. And if you're not sure what you can do, again, hunt something out, seek it out and ask. So friends, the end of all things is near. We live in the last days. Jesus could return at any time. That reality must change the way we live. Don't live the rest of your earthly lives committed to the things of the world that will pass away. Choose to be obedient to Christ. No matter the cost, be done with sin because sin will only entangle you in the wasted pursuits of this world. Instead, be sober and alert. Pray. Invest deeply in the things of God, the things that matter, and in the people of God with whom you'll share eternity. Father, we thank you for these words. We thank you for that reminder that the end of all things is near. 
and that that must shape the way we think about our lives and the way we live our lives. We thank you, Father, that it shapes the way we think about the world and the temptations of the world and of sin and the things we struggle with. Father, we want to be done with sin so that we can live to do your will. And Father, teach us that a right response is to love your people. Help us to love your people deeply, offer hospitality and a welcome to all, and to learn to serve with the gifts that you've given us. Father, we pray that what we've learned tonight will shape the way we live. We ask this in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church Podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.